0: This is The Otaku Nate Show, Episode 23, Megazone 2-3, 23, Part 1, Enter the OAV. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is my boy Race. Hello, hello, and welcome. It's been a while since I've had you on, man. Mostly
1: just due to snafu with other episodes. Oh my gosh. So all I have to say is that has it been nothing but 80s and 90s anime with us? I'm not complaining, but it's it's excellent that it is. Well, that's my bread and butter, baby. The first episode we did was Kishan, and that was from 73. True. That's very true. I always forget about Kishan. But yeah, like, DM- like how Scooby-Doo.
0: But yeah, DM me uh, if there's uh, any like 2000s, 2010s, 2020s anime you want to talk about.
1: Oh yeah, I think there's something in the pipeline that we have planned that I think our next guests guests are going to get a kick out of. Say no more. But we're not alone to discuss today's episode
0: because we have some very special guests today.
2: I'm Justin. And I'm Mike. And we're Maison Otaku. Yep, we are your number one Z-List YouTube channel for anime. Aw, don't worry, you're number
0: one in my book. Your legion's better than the likes of oh, I don't know, Econ or hero Hey, or God help you,
1: Professor Otaku. <laughs>
2: Hooray listen, for the low bar.
1: Get... <laughs> listen, let's get some heat on Nate here, guys. Come on. Let's yeah. let's hate tweet them. Let's go. But low hanging fruit, sir. Remember, don't eat too much of the low hanging fruit or you're gonna starve. <laughs> We're
0: already off the rails. So, today we're going to be talking about Megazone 2-3, Part 1. And I say Part 1 because there's three parts to this whole thing, but we're going to look at the first one and save the other two for future episodes. Now, this would be the part where I said, well, this show came out in 1985, and it was by this studio, and was directed by this guy, and was created by that guy. But I'm not going to do that for now. Because... Megazone 2.3 has a fascinating history behind it as to how it got made.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. Getting
3: made is one of the things that Megazone 2.3 did not do well for the bulk of its life. Yeah. Yeah. Megazone 2.3 is to production what Artmic is to wise financial investments
1: (laughs) oh listen guys i'm just gonna have to say one thing it's much more fun to come up with ideas when you're wasted and spend all the money on frivolous other things than to actually put out a good ova okay guys all i'm saying all i'm saying part one hit it out of the park right knocked it out of the park but the other parts i think we know but today we're going to talk about the first and the best part And that's what we're here to do.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, don't get me wrong, like, uh, Megazone 23's, uh, artistically, it's just a very okay anime, but it's definitely interesting to talk about its history and impact.
1: And definitely, I am there for the impact, because, honestly, this was one of the first streamlined tapes that I ever saw at the video rental place as a young lad, and it was well worth it. It it got... Because of the cover, it got mistaken for Transformers, the movie. And we ended up getting both. And boy, howdy. Was I in for a treat. But thank God for liberal parents at the time, because they did not mind the blood and the anime boobs. I'll tell you what, folks.
3: (laughs) The thing about Megazone 2-3 that's always stood out for me is if you want to talk about... Something that is trying to hit every single one of the, oh wow, this is of the moment
2: thing. It's very much a uh, good metric for what was popular in Japan at the time.
1: Definitely. MegaZone 2-3 is one of those... it's a time capsule. It's a time capsule to mid-80s Japan.
2: Yeah, it's like we got, okay, we got Mikimoto character designs. That's in. We got some catchy pop rock, uh, some transforming vehicle mechs. Uh, an o- it's an OVA with plenty of the sex and violence. There's flash dancing. There's Japanese biker culture. Hell, there's Streets of yep. Fire in there.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely.
2: Oh, and, and also a loop on a uh, cameo I didn't we're notice get, Guys Guys, we're,
0: we're getting ahead of this.
2: Oh, oh go ahead. Oh,
0: the story as to how Megazone 2-3 got made, or almost didn't get made, is that it was originally supposed to be a project called Omega City 23. And the story was that it was about a young teenager named Satoru, who was given a hover bike, and with this new toy he has, discovers a government-backed conspiracy. That is all we know of the premise for Omega City. Drafts and sketches were written, but nothing ever came of it. The initial premise was scrapped in favor of a different show called Vanity City, and it was actually set to be a TV series with a full-blown sponsorship set to air on Fuji TV. Then at the last minute, their toy sponsor pulled out of the deal, and so AIC decided, you know what? This guy by the name of Mamoru Oshii has released a show called Dalos to the direct-to-video market. Why don't we try that as a bit of a test for this project? And so, they edited down what little story they had written down, and they shipped it out to home video stores, and the rest is history.
1: And just recently watching Dalos myself, there's a lot to be seen. Dalos and Megazone 23 mirrors itself. I actually have the original Star Video US release of Dallas and I watched it again recently and I'm just like and I was watching Megazone 2-3 tw- and then I also watched Grey Digital Target and I was watching sort of the trifecta. Well, there's a couple of more OVAs if you want to include Ixer 1 from the early to mid 80s that really encompasses what anime was back then and I was kind of comparing and contrasting each of them. But I can definitely see where a lot of studios really grabbed off Dallos, especially with the government conspiracies, the action, the rushed story, things like that, like a failed TV series. Oh, it doesn't have to be a failed TV series. <laughs> Let's put it out on video and see where it goes. Well, I would argue that
0: Megazone 2-3 is at least more memorable than Dallos. And you have to keep in mind, this is 85. One year earlier, Mamuro Oshi released Dallos And while it at least proved viable for the home video format, it didn't set the world on fire like Megazone 2.3 did. Because when Megazone 2.3 hit video stores, it sold, in its first year, 200,000 copies.
1: Oh yeah, well, I'm definitely not saying that a home you know, the, the highest settling home video release has to definitely be the worst or the best, but you know, who did it first, you can de- definitely see the influences right there in your face. Dallas is there. If Dallas was the one that got
0: the OAV ball started, then Megazone two three is the one that floored it to the finish line.
2: Well, I mean it was it was a kickstarter basically, a jump start to the OVA boom. It was already forming on its own. That just gave it, a, gave it a, the push it needed. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Right.
3: When you really look at... When you really compare the two pieces, I mean, yes, you can see parallels. But on one hand, you have Oshii, who's still in his very contemplative, experimental, trying-to-break-free-of-the-existing-TV-studio structure... Period. I mean, this would ultimately wrap up with Angel's Ed.
2: I was going to say, this is his I'm-going-to-do-drugs-with-Yoshitaka-amano phase. <laughs> and
3: Dallas is very representative of that. It draws from a lot of his other inspirations. I mean, it's been noted several times that Dallas is effectively a the moon is a harsh mistress OAV. Yeah, but bet. Compare that to Megazone, which Megazone could be a Casio ad.
1: <laughs> a <little laughs> That's bit. true. That's true. And I guess what you're what you're saying, like, with the parallel parallels where Megazone two three kind of separates itself, where the harsh sci fi of Robert Heinlein backs Dalos... It's, this is a Casio ad. Megazone 2-3 is a poppy Casio ad or a Roland ad. Like, buy our keyboards so you can play along with these songs that are in this OVA.
3: Right. I mean, to use your reference to Robot Carnival, Starlight Angel is the sequence that pretty much nails down. That I want to say, Race, is probably the one you were thinking of. It's either of.
2: that one or Deprive. That uh, no it one...
3: was
1: Starlight Angel. Yeah. Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. That really is Megazone. Whereas the sequence with the sketched robot going through Cloud. human Cloud, Yeah.
1: Cloud, yep. Cloud. There's yeah.
3: There's Dalos.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. That would make sense.
0: Uh definitely. But to get back on track regarding personnel, we've got quite the talent on this one. Megazone was directed by a director who is very near and dear to my heart, and that is Noburo Ishiguro. He got his start in the 60s on humanoid monster BEM, and he would pretty much make a career for himself directing a lot of highly acclaimed and very important anime. The three most significant ones being Space Battleship Yamato, The Super Dimension Fortress Macross, and of course... My favorite anime of all time, yes, I am an elitist for loving this, Legend of the Galactic Heroes. He's not an artsy director like Mamoru Oshii or Osamu Dezaki or Kunihiko Ikuhara, but he's a very simple, very dry sort of director.
3: He's not one to play with the camera, so to speak, I mean... Let's face it. I adore Legend of the Galactic Heroes. But you know the opening sequence of Kimigori Orange Road, the third opening sequence where it's one complete uninterrupted take. Right. He never tried anything like that.
2: <laughs> no. I mean, at all. you know, it's Legend of the Galactic Heroes in terms of framing and animation. It's it's basically just high-end clutch cargo.
0: I'll always say that I love Legend of the Galactic Heroes, but the animation is the weakest part of it.
3: More or less. It's illustrated, it's not animated.
0: Yes. The screenplay for this was written by Hiroyuki Hoshiyama. He was a script writer for select episodes of several Sunrise Mecha anime, the likes of the likes of Dugrum, Vodums, I think he did Lazner, I'd have to double check. He was also script supervisor for the Dirty Pair OAVs and Project Eden. And co-creator of Vifam. Oh, and he also wrote Cyber Formula GPX. Vifam
1: is something that no one ever really talks about, but Vifam's music is really underrated.
2: Oh, it's a fun show.
1: One thing about Vifam is that it goes... From just zero to sixty, where it's like, oh, we're a bunch of kids on a ship. It kinda reminds me of a two thousands anime, it reminds me of Infinite Rivius, where it's yep. like the where the mechas are in the bat where the mecha is in the background until much later. So Infinite Rivius is a show about the characters and not the robots? Oh yeah. I didn't oh man, wow, what what happened here? <laughs> I think that's a red flag for any mecha loving YouTubers out there. Race, you already said
0: so, can any of you guys give me the premise of Megazone Two Three? A
3: cool guy owns a motorcycle. That—that's it. That, that it's that thin.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna add. I'm gonna add more to it. Justin, a cool guy owns a motorcycle, gets the girl, tries to expose the government for its bullshit, ultimately fails, still gets the girl, still kind of has the motorcycle but there are no consequences despite people dying on his watch. Dude, spoilers. That's that's the whole thing. (laughs) Listen, spoilers have to happen for this sucker. I mean, it's over 30 years old. Let's go.
0: Yeah, but basically the premise is that Shogo Yahagi, a young teenage punk, discovers a motorcycle, finds that there is a government conspiracy surrounding the motorcycle... Learns that the world he is living in is not the one he thought he lived in, and there's a su- supercomputer and also idol singers, and it's not all that important.
1: So, basically, the part, the plot to Macross Plus, and maybe a little bit of Macross 2? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So, Race, you already said that you
0: had a bit of an experience with MegaZone 2 3 Part 1 when your parents rented
1: it for you on VHS.
0: What did you oh, yeah. think of it at the time?
1: When I was a kid, I thought it was um, I thought it was a little scary because, like, because growing up on the autism spectrum, I didn't really understand. I had a hard time like picking up on violence and things like that. And with cartoons, it was a little easier. I watched RoboCop way too young, <laughs> if that, and on VHS, if that helps you guys out. But I think that what I definitely remember from Megazone Two, Three, and the reason why I eventually had to have it was honestly the action sequences were just there. There's three big action sequences in each act of the of the OVA that really sell it. And mind you guys, I only watched the 80-minute version growing up. I've had that one for years, so the Carl Masek cut. I've had that one for many, many moons. And I still think that even when you watch the original or the ADV and then you go back and you watch the streamlined pictures version, there's still enough there. Enough isn't cut out, but the action sequences are what I remember most, especially when dudes' eyes would pop out of their heads before their ships would explode. That was one of those big things for me. Uh, The story, I was just like, whatever. I thought it was crazy that... An OVA, you know, or a cartoon at the time would actually have McDonald's because you never saw McDonald's in a cartoon before. And so seeing that, like the, that was the big thing about Megazone two, three. And, you know, the not for kids sticker did not. The not for kids sticker did not deter my folks because, oh, it's a cartoon. It can't be that bad. But yeah, it just it was kind of like one of those early anime for me because I grew up. Having the anime VHS and my dad's friend who worked at GM was a big anime collector and was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just uh, if your kids grades stay good, I'm just going to throw them a bunch of anime. And so I have a bunch of pre-taped anime and a lot of them are OVAs like Legend of the Forest, Ixer 1, stuff like that. So I'm very well-versed in 80s OVAs, and Megazone 23 was one that I already had for a long time, and yeah, it's near and dear to my heart just being one of those OVAs that's just very enjoyable to me. At least part
0: one. (laughs) Justin, Mike, where did you first hear of Megazone
2: 23? Um, I think I was first exposed to it uh, with, um, what was it, I think Rhino Records put out the best of anime soundtrack. Uh, then, what is it, Sentimental Over My Shoulder was on there. It was probably my favorite uh, uh, song on that CD. And then, years later, I actually found the uh, cardboard case image DVD release that actually still uh, had the um, Streamline logo on the back.
3: For me, I came to it a bit later in my, my anime viewing, my anime collecting. Uh, as I began to kind of get into the streamline releases in my collecting. Uh, Of course, you know, it's part of the B-roll, the Priced for Keeps promo. So naturally I was drawn to, okay, well, here's another piece of the history, here's another thing I want to engage with. You know, it wasn't something I came to when I was young, not the way with, like, Dominion Tank Police or Project Aco or Bubblegum Crisis when I was much younger.
1: Saturday anime! Exactly. (laughs) Uh,
3: So, for me, Megazone was something I came to as a much more fully fleshed-out anime fan, and just my initial reaction to it was very, okay, I see where this is coming from, I see what this is trying to do, I see a lot of things that, you know, I like, but it's surprisingly thin, thin (laughs) it's it's very thin and that's where the my my advertisement analogy really came in it's just it's bubblegum more so than bubblegum crisis yeah Yeah. which isn't
2: bad i mean good
3: lord i'm sitting across i'm sitting across from my dvd rotunda and I have my dear Marie sitting next to General <laughs> the Wolf Brigade. Oh, so,
1: I have two copies of that. I have my dear Marie, and then I have Metal Angel Marie because they had two separate AADV o- releases on VHS.
3: So you know, I, it's not that I have necessarily a problem with thin, that I've got a problem with things that have a, the depth of a parking lot puddle. But that's yeah. just that was always kind of my my impression coming away from it was
2: okay, neat.
0: Next.
1: (laughs) It's there. Yeah, it's there.
2: It's a bit of
0: fun. I really don't want to do the old... Well, I heard about this one from Anime World Order, because... That's where I w- That's what I was listening to a lot of in high school, the Anime World Order podcast. We're still going strong today, shout out to you guys. But for their 50th episode, they reviewed three things that each member wanted to talk about. Daryl talked about Macross, do you remember Love? Clarissa talked about Princess Tutu. And Gerald talked about Megazone 2-3 Part 1, which he claimed was one of the quintessential anime of the 1980s. And I, as a young kid, at a Suncoast, because they had the part one on DVD, this was before the Musicland bankruptcy, I bought it completely blind, even though I had listened to the review, not knowing what it was about. And to be fair, I don't really remember much of the review itself, but I put it on one day while I was doing a project for high school. I watched it. And I enjoyed it, although my mom was present with me, and, uh, there was, uh, one scene which, uh, we'll get to yeah, that.
1: Yeah. I'm excited to get to that scene, because, oh. like I said, guys, I have one word I invented, and it's just gonna set the word- just gonna make you guys laugh, you guys- oh, it's so good. Just one word to describe that scene.
0: But I didn't watch it for many years until I started up my video review show, which- Most of those episodes are gone, but I did save the master files, so they're not completely lost to time, copyright bots. Put them on DVD.
3: Mike, we don't know anything about what that's like. Oh, no. Uh...
2: Oh, God, yeah, that's... Let's not go there. That's going to give me PTSD flashbacks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But upon revisiting it, yeah, Justin, I agree with what you say about it being very thin and all that, but at the same time, I appreciate it for what it is, and what it did for anime as a whole. We talked about this versus Dalos. Dalos, because I watched it after Megazone 2-3 many, many years later, it was okay, but it didn't leave too much an impression on me. But Megazone 2-3 I still remember parts of, even after all this time. And even going back to rewatch it, I remember the events in which they happened in.
1: Well, for me, I think I remember Dalos and I remember Megazone 2-3, kind of both equally the same because I grew up reading a lot of Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, Asimov, stuff like that, where, you know, you had a lot of that sort of what Justin was speaking of, what you were speaking of, Justin, which was that sort of the moon is a cruel mistress kind of thing. And of course, O'Neill cylinders. And I do like that uh, there are aspects, but more of a shallow kind of aspects. Megazone two, three does take a lot of, it, it takes the frosting off the cake and then sells you the frosting and says it's the cake. Yeah. That's basically what that OVA does is it takes the frosting off an existing cake puts the frosting in a box, sells you the frosting, and tells you it's a cake.
3: Yeah, I mean, Mike and I were talking earlier in preparation for this, and I said to Mike, if it weren't for how authentically the creators definitely wanted to make Megazone, you'd swear it was a poochie creation.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I concur, and especially how the other parts are treated after this. It, it's it's yeah. I concur with you there. Absolutely.
0: Could you run that by me again? A what creation? A poochie. poochie
3: As in the classic Simpsons episode.
0: Yeah, the dog. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Pucci, okay. Dog. I, th- I, I heard it. I heard <laughs> coochie for some reason. Yeah. Uh,
1: but no, he has to go back to home world now. Yeah. He has to go back to his home world. And just so, just like the ending of Megazone Twenty Three. Whoops! Everything is inconsequential.
0: But I did buy the L.E. put out by Animego. I didn't back it because, you know, I was moving into my condo at the time and I was tight for money. I'm doing a little better now. But, you know, I don't really... I've been buying less and less anime and manga lately just to save money for something bigger, I guess. Bigger endeavors.
3: I can't blame you there. I'm, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm in model railroading.
0: But I got the nice L.E. put out by Animego and rewatched it. And I enjoyed it. So let's get into things proper. And I guess we should start where we always start with the animation. And for what is an early OAV, what did you guys think of how it looks?
1: Because this screams 1985. Oh, yeah. It is, it's pretty much basically, if you look at it through the up mastering of like a Blu-ray mastering, which I... Did I was able to borrow a copy of it from my friend Greg, and it was through the internet, thank goodness. But uh, it was kind of like one of those things where you just go, Yep, it is pretty much on par with the upscaling of Zeta Gundam, Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam. It's pretty much around because they were pretty much around the same time. So, I mean, it's par for the course, it's pretty much standard for 85. Yeah, no, that, I mean, and think no about way. it. That's a that's a that's a big TV show, and this was an OVA. So if you want to play off the two, it reminded me a lot of, and especially like I said, if you look at the upscaling in the Blu-ray and how good they got that to look, it definitely reminds me of Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam and that quality at the time, and a lot of other mecha shows that were out at the time. It kinda has that sort of quality. The animation can neither be here nor there. And while I was watching yeah. it, they really took attention to the bikes and to the backgrounds more than the characters. At least that's what I always and I always caught from Megazone two three was or twenty three or however you want to say it. Two three is Yeah, two three. Is just basically they really cared about the settings and the vehicles more than they did the characters and the characters like just remind me of a super robot show in a way because you you know you have your green haired girls your red haired girls and your blue haired girls and you know ah they're the main characters and then you have that motorcycle culture guys where show goes from and of course the manga for akira was popular at the time so japanese biker culture here we go but futuristic japanese biker culture we got to have that we got to make it futuristic fellas and it it's the and there's the new wave and the punk attitudes and dressing so it's all there it's it's all basically let's throw 80s up until 85 into a blender and i think it's okay i mean it's it's definitely passable it's one of those things where when you finally get down and take a look at it you go oh yeah yep this is this is the 80s (laughs) this is 80s anime and it's a better example than other 80s anime in my personal opinion
3: Speaking to the uh, that heavy mechanical design focus, uh, garage kit culture at that point in time was so heavily influential. Uh, the major modeling magazines were just as influential as the major manga magazines. And that was just part of what you did. I mean, right. it's been... That ArtMic existed more to sell garage kits than it did to sell tapes. Um, so you see that in quite a few of that wave of manga ka and young creators who were coming into the industry. I mean, for heaven's sakes, remember that Shiro was breaking out at this time. And if you really read Ghost in the Shell, the man can do nine pages of exactly how a tachikoma works and functions and everything but he can't figure out what the major skin tone is one panel to the next
1: yeah that's 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 very true but also compared to shiro and this ova they're both cyberpunk
3: they are i mean it's it's not to to draw away from that but it's to sort of bring up here's really where that was coming from, and, you know, a lot of the creator. I mean, heck, even Kosuke Fujishima to a de- you know, to a degree, who was part of that generation, and, for that matter, Akira Toriyama, you know. Akira oh, Toriyama yeah. one face, but if you ask the man to draw a Lotus Elan, he
2: nails it. Oh yeah, he is very underrated for his mechanical designs.
1: But I mean, it's... you know, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just kidding, and it's not, it's definitely not a bad thing. It's definitely not a bad thing, but that was just more popular.
2: Yeah, it's not a bad
3: thing at all. It's just that is yeah, the culture, the that was the the atmosphere in which these creators were bring, were being brought up. It's kind of one of the reasons why Tomino despises them all so much. <laughs> well,
0: we mentioned motorcycles and mechanical designs. We have a legend who did a lot of the mechanical design work, and that is Shinji Aramaki. If you ever need any anime that have motorcycles, or transforming motorcycles, or just some super cool robots, he's your guy. Mecha designer on things like Maddox 01, he did mecha design work for
1: Bubblegum Crisis. Now, was adding Shinji into the name a rib against the guy? Because they have a character named Shinji in the show, and I always wonder if that was a rib against that guy, or a little joke, an in-joke. I think it's just a coincidence.
2: It's kind know, of that a common be, Japanese that be,
1: name. I know, it's a common Japanese name, but that would be really funny if it was a rib against the guy. Well, joke's on him,
0: because now he's doomed to directing shitty CGI anime <laughs> that goes on Netflix.
1: F. Uh, <laughs> that's just how it goes. So,
3: I actually do like the CGI Harlock film
2: oh that one's so, pretty
1: good yeah but no uh, yeah come on cgi harlock was good i remember when that came out that was hot but
2: uh you know the fourth or fifth or whatever they're up to now starship troopers movie eh, not so much mm-hmm. the
0: character designs were handled by somebody race and i have talked about on the show before the great maniac known as toshiki hirano
1: to- oh hirano
0: if you missed our review of Dan Gaio, Toshiki Hirano directed and did character designs for that OAV. he's also the man behind Ixer, he did Magic Knight Rayearth in the 90s and currently he's directing Baki.
1: I really- and one of the best things about Hirano I have to bring up is honestly before we brought up Ixer one, we brought up Dan Gaio in this in this podcast already and it yep, yeah, his his signatures all over it. Oh yeah,
2: the
3: the man can draw some broad-hipped women. There's no doubt about that.
1: <laughs> yep,
2: and some big eyes. Well, you know, which was the style at the time.
0: I saw a tweet the other day about oh how... wild
1: hair as well.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Shogo, he kind of looks like Hikaru from Macross, only I'll his
1: hair is and... a little
2: more a little more wild.
1: I will have to say, though, I really think that Megazone 2-3 is a rib against Macross as well.
2: I don't know if it's so much a rib against as, like, you know, some of the same talent working on it. Some of the ideas
0: they had for Macross made it into Megazone
2: 2-3. Yeah, there's that too, yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Especially since the character Eve, the idol singer, was designed by Haruhiko Mikimoto, Mr. Macross himself.
2: Yep, and I vaguely remember there that, like, uh, Eve's whole shtick in the original Macross version of the idea was like she was supposed to be, like, a fake hologram Minmei or something.
0: Well, no, 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 You're ge- we're jumping ahead, we're jumping ahead. Since it's a robot show, we gotta talk about the robots. The Garland. What do you think of it? Because I think pretty... it's pretty cool. It's this big, chonky motorcycle that transforms into a robot that looks kind of cool, but... Also has a really tiny cockpit that does not look comfortable. My father would not like that because he has claustrophobia.
1: All I have to say about the Garland and the rest of the mecha on the show being a big mecha guy myself. I think they're all pretty generic. And I think that if the Garland wasn't red, you couldn't tell it apart from the rest of the mechs later on in the ova when you get into it and they start to show off the mechs because at first you're like oh boy techno police vibes i don't know if anyone knows techno police but oh boy uh like totally techno police vibes like they looked really cool and then they get really generic near the end and the garland stands out because it's red and I just have to say that the rest of it, I wasn't too impressed by that. Even though they took the time with the mechanical design, I just felt that they went more of a practical route instead of a super robot route. And that's what hurt Megazone 2-3, in my personal opinion, at the end of the day, is because I think that it just wasn't super robot enough.
2: I was going to say, I actually rather like the mecha designs. It's just their it's very much rule of cool mechs. It's very Bubblegum Crisis in its mecha design approach.
3: The Garland is somewhere in this weird zone where it's not nearly as practical and well thought out as an Ingram, but it's not nearly as flashy or as eye-catching while still being real robot, so to speak. As even something out of Xeon, it's just not. Qu- it's just not quite. And probably a big part of that is just down to there was. There's a lot of that motorcycle fixation in the design. You know, con- constantly trying to translate motorcycle components into a functional mecha without taking a step back and saying is this really working
2: actually this- that, that's a good uh, way to sum it up it, it is more of a robot that transforms into a motorcycle than a motorcycle that transforms into a robot
1: right now the thing is is that they try to show off the bulk and how big this thing actually is, because multiple times in the OVA, when Shogo's dri- driving that thing around and crashing in the cars and stuff, it's much bigger than it feels. But it's, it kind of reminds me of that, of like those, you know, magician suitcases that pulls out more rope or more tissues than it really needs to and so that's where in a way if it if it want because it wanted to go practical and you can tell that the design crew and everyone in the soviet wanted this thing to look practical at the end of the day it's not practical even though they show multiple times because remember guys one of the biggest things about directing is show not tell so you've seen multiple times where when shogo crashes the garland in motorcycle form into cars he just, all he has to do is just bump into a car and there's monumental damage. Not like monumental ridiculous damage, but, you know, a headlight and a front end on the left or right side is going to just be completely destroyed. Or if, you know, the garland at one point goes on top of the car and crushes it, you can tell this thing is bigger than it actually is and how fast it goes as well.
3: All right, so this is where we have to start discussing do we have somewhere where we can cite a member of the crew stating that their goal was to demonstrate the bulk of the Garland, you know, like in interviews or so forth, director commentary, or is this really, no, we want to have the most destructive motorcycle chase we possibly can because cartoon?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. That's very true, and you can tell at the end of the day, Justin, I concur with you that, yeah, they didn't think it through, but that's okay that they didn't think it through. They just showed you the bulk of the machine in the OVA itself and just said, well, there's not going to be four white guy nerds in the year of our Lord 2022 that's going to try to dissect the Garland itself and try to see where it lies into real robot and extra ro- uh Hey, you got that Coke spoon? You got that bottle of Jack Daniels? Let's go.
2: (laughs) Well, as I said a moment ago, it it is very much a rule of cool, Mac.
1: Yeah,
0: definitely. I
1: concur with you.
0: All I can think of when you talked about its bulk, there's a scene where Shogo backs the garland up and hits the rear end of a car, and it doesn't come back. It's just the animators just wanted to animate it because they could.
2: Yep. Yep. Yep, (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) I mean, that's another thing that very much sums up the 80s OVA scene. We animated it because we could.
0: Speaking of animating things because we could, that opening montage at the beginning where Shogo and his friends are going out on the town... Yep. I do a panel all about the rise and fall of the OAV, and when I spotlight Megazone 2-3 Part 1... I use that whole sequence to show people, hey, this is what OAVs were about. This wasn't your traditional anime opening where you have an opening scene or cold open or exposition opening, then cut to opening song, then back to main storyline. It's very much an opening that tells you what Shogo is like as a person.
1: And you really do need to see that. Because Shogo is definitely a person that would not get away with things in the year of our Lord 2022. Unless we kind of see what his personality is like in the first couple minutes of the OVA. Or OAV. However you want to say it. I
2: grew up with OVA, so I always... Either is fine. Yeah, exactly. It's just a bit of fun that they animated because, well, we have the budget and this is really cool. And we're going to put a bunch of the cool things... You know, that the show has to offer in there. You know, it's. It is it's, what he described.
3: Yeah, Front loading events into the opening of an OAV really wasn't. Really wasn't so much an oddball practice anyway, just because in terms of economy, you, you need to ha- set the hook immediately. You can't take the chance of that tape going back to the store with the receipt. So. If you didn't deliver the goods immediately, whatever the goods you happen to be promising were, you were already out to lunch.
0: And in that regard, Begazone 2-3 hooks you in quite well, you know? Scene of Shogo I- riding through traffic on his motorcycle. He meets Yui, hangs out with his friends Mommy. Mori, Mai, and Tomomi. They go see Streets of Fire, which tells you what year this movie came out in.
2: Oh, yeah. well a lot of people forget that while it was a minor bomb in the u.s streets of fire was nothing short of a cultural touchstone in japan it it touched a lot of things yeah the opening from bubblegum
0: crisis is taken from streets of fire
2: yep the guys at Artmic were talking about uh actually starting the project i think the whole thing started with one of them saying i quote i want to make a sci-fi version of streets of fire
0: well, if I ever talk about Bubblegum Crisis, I'll have you on to confirm that. But before we move on, because we've spent so much time talking about the animation right now, can I just list off some of the key animators on there that really made this what it was?
2: Oh, by all means.
0: I already mentioned Toshiki Hirano, and I already mentioned Shinji But also working on this is Ichiro Itano, the man who animated all of the great flight scenes from Macross and Macross Plus and he also did the flight scenes in Eureka 7 created what was called the Itano Circus if you've ever watched a mecha or I don't know any fight scene where a character fires off a bunch of missiles and they all chase something leaving their own unique smoke trail that's what is known as the Itano Circus
1: and one of the greatest
0: things of all time Keep the name Ichiro Itano in the back of your mind for when we inevitably talk about part two. There's Kinji Yoshimoto, who is still working in anime to this day, directing such wonderful things like The Seven Mortal Sins, que- Queen's Blade.
3: Wait, 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 we're... Putting Queen's Blade under the
0: bad category?
3: I
2: was
1: waiting for you to say that, Jesus Christ. Wait, wait, listen, Queen's Blade is not bad. I I have to stand with Justin here.
0: Oh, I don't think it's that bad. I'm just saying because other people do think it's bad. I'm kind of just playing to my crowd. And they're
3: wrong. (laughs) And possibly retarded.
0: He also directed Legend of Lemnir, and he is currently shackled to the cursed genre of Isekai, directing Arifureta, from commonplace to world's strongest, and I couldn't become a hero, so I reluctantly decided to get a job.
1: Listen, you got to know, got to go where the money is, honey. And this guy knew where the money was.
2: I'm kind of deciding whether that's a better or worse fate than uh, Raven Studios making crappy Call of Duty DLC nowadays.
3: You've got—I can't fault so- the guy for continuing to work. I mean, exactly, oh, yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah. That's why I said you got to go where the money is, honey.
3: Just because I'm not terribly interested in, you know, there's good ones, there's bad ones, I'm no judge of it. Uh, Mike and I both have a friend who is all about the isekai, Mm -hmm. and he routinely informs us, no, 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 wait, that's a bad one, that one is, in fact, terrible, like, oh, okay, this one's a good one. Ah, I'm still avoiding it, like, you know, like it has leprosy.
1: (laughs) Best isekai ever, those who hunt elves. (laughs)
2: No. (laughs) No comment.
0: Two other credits that I missed, he was also the director on Unbreakable Machine Doll and Plastic Little.
1: Listen, Plastic Little is a goddamn masterpiece. Yes.
0: Speaking of etchy stuff (laughs) from that time period, we've also got Yasuomi Umetsu on this show. He directed my favorite segment from Robot Carnival, Presence. he He also would go on to direct... Kite, Mesoforte, and a bunch of other stuff that is best left forgotten, but he's more famous as an illustrator and character designer.
2: Well, plus he also did uh, that wonderful uh, group of uh, gritty 90s reboots of Tatsunoko anime, well, That's and, right. and Palomar, which wasn't great, but the others he did were. The Kashan
1: reboots, I think, still stands up.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. Nobuteru Yuki, who
0: would go on to be a quite prolific character designer... Working on such things like the vision of Escaflone, Kids on the Slope, Heat Guy J. Oh, this blows my mind. He did character designs for Five Star Stories. And nowadays, he's the character designer on Space Battleship Yamato 2199. The rebooted series of Yamato, he's the character designer.
3: Yeah, Yuki's actually done... He has a great flair for translation, because... All of those that you mentioned, on paper, have incredibly detailed, incredibly complicated character designs. I mean, Paradise Kiss is a fashion magazine that just also happens to be one of the most cold-hearted show-show manga of the of the late '90s, well, which is also, fantastic.
0: Let's also not forget he was character designer on Angel Cop.
3: Another example where you're taking incredibly detailed paper design, you know, manga designs, and translating into something that you can actually animate on a budget.
0: Another animator mm-hmm. who worked on this, another maniac by the name of Masami Obari. Of
1: course, you can honestly can't, at the end of the day, you cannot avoid Masami Obari if you want to talk about the 80s or 90s in anime. One of my favorite pictures is a picture of Yoshiyuki Tomino photoshopped on Masami Obari's RX-93 hand to promote Shars uh, counterattack, and it looks so cool.
0: <laughs> and rounding it out,
1: the biggest maniac of them all, Hideaki Ano worked on this. Of course he did. Young kid trying to get work anywhere he can. He,
0: of course, would go on to <laughs> co-found Gynax directed Nadia's Secret of Blue Water Gunbuster His and Her Circumstances and currently he's doing live action stuff right now he is set to release his Shin Kamen Rider adaptation I think next month or a few months from now I didn't check the release date and I think he did something else but I'm forgetting what it is
1: oh Shin God- his Shin Godzilla killed <laughs> that was really good Shin Godzilla that's it yeah, Shin Godzilla was was a, was a trip. I turned one of my friends onto it. He's a big Godzilla fan and he's never seen Shin Godzilla and we were still working at the bakery together at the time before the bakery closed down and I was like, "Have you seen Shin Godzilla?" He's like, "No." So, one of the times we hung out cuz he's seen every Godzilla movie, he hasn't seen Shin Godzilla. He was like, "What?" And I was like, "It's the Evang it's the Evangelion guy. It's the Nadia guy cuz I was showing him the stuff that you know the animated stuff they did, and he was like, "Whoa!" He was like, "Wow, that's so cool." And we also don't and want to leave out the
3: well, live-action cutie honey, which is important.
1: Listen, the live-action cutie honey is a national, is an international treasure, and should be protected at all costs.
0: So, moving on, we've got to go to the sound department now. The soundtrack for this was composed by a very young Shiro Sagisu. And this just screams 80s anime soundtrack. A lot of synth stuff, a lot of heartfelt ballads, and of course, plenty of city pop, courtesy of Kumi Sato.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of the, uh, the artistic standouts for me anyway, while it's not at all alone. This is, like you said, it is 80s anime, the soundtrack. And
1: one of those things that I want to bring up too with the music is that in my research in the past and especially knowing from reading a few things if you couldn't tell victor music has its hand in it so i'm pretty sure since they were helping produce to fund this animation you can tell where that music budget came from and how that music should be for that ova so we got victor music industry especially in association with Co. I want to go back to animation for a second, but there's a lot of product placement here. I think I saw a billboard for Victor
0: Records, like there was a billboard for David Bowie. And oh like, yeah. There's product placement for motorcycles, like Yamaha, Kawasaki. In the opening montage, Shogo breaks a Coca-Cola machine. Oh, and he also works at a McDonald's. And Yui even mentions, and I thought this was a line that was only in the dub, but it's also present in Japanese. Yui works at a Hard Rock Cafe. Yes.
1: Yeah. She works at a hard rock cafe. And here's another things that are more visual gags as well in the studio. So to bring up music and of course, music is a huge part of a lot of OVAs and especially new wave music and everything. There is a reference to Icicle Icicle Works, the band Icicle Works, which is an early new wave post-punk band stuff that I'm into. And I just love that they just put the band name Icicle Works. So you could tell that they were probably like, you know, a couple of Icicle Works fans there. And of course, a couple of the names are musical reference. Well, a couple of the code names that they use later on the OVA are musical references, Michael and Rockwell, things like that, that kind of work out. So it's kind of just a, it's, it's definitely a cultural kind of thing. It's, it's an OVA, especially with the music that's very influenced. It's, it's a, It's a time capsule. (laughs) It's definitely a time capsule. And so us talking about the music and really saying the Idol and Victor music, having their money put into this thing, of course, they're going to totally influence it for record sales, right?
0: And one scene that remains influential regarding the music is the scene where Shogo watches Yui and a bunch of other girls do an Arabics workout. There's a shot of Yui doing Arabics posing with what looks to be a face where... How do I describe this? She looks like she's really into it.
2: Oh, absolutely. To put it mildly,
0: that one frame has been screen capped and shared all throughout the Vaporwave and
1: Future Funk community as being an incredibly... AESTHETIC. And I have a lot to say about the Vaporwave and Future Funk community when it comes to anime. Please choose the right anime because at the end of the day... When you guys choose something that it's like, oh, the ending to Barefoot Gen is feels is not feels. And so that moves us to the voice cast. Shogo is played
0: by Masato Kubota. This is really his only notable anime role. He didn't do anything outside of some minor roles in Touch. By contrast, Maria Kawamura plays Yui, and... If you're a Mecha fan, then you'll know her from a lot of stuff. She is oh, be- yeah. she's Beltorchka in Zeta Gundam. Everybody's favorite Gundam girl, Quest Pariah in Shaw's Counterattack. ooh, Chum Huao in Aura Battler Dunbean. Goha Lisi and Lilith Fawn in Heavy Metal Elgime. Lekesis in Five Star Stories. Jung Freud in Gunbuster, but her most famous role is not in Mecca. Any guesses as to what it is?
1: Well, I am going to speak first, and I'm definitely probably going to say it's something outside of the lines of a, let's see here, how about- Do you want me to give you a hint? Sure, I'm, I, I, I'll bite, I'll bite, I'll bite, give me that hint. Okay, here's your hint.
0: <clears throat>
1: okay, so basically we're talking about superhero stuff. So superheroine, we're gonna Wait, go it, with
2: it's that, that was that. Naga, Naga? That Naga?
1: yep. I'm, I'm she's Naga. That. She is yep. Naga, the serpent from the Slayers movies and OAVs. That's right. Yeah, I was like superheroes, like? fantasy. That, that's yep.
3: There you go, Mike. Now you have two reasons to strangle that woman. <laughs> <sighs> it's one of our stand, our long-standing jokes. Naga gets under his skin in a way that is immeasurable. And, of course, Naga is a deeply tanned, underdressed woman with giant chesticles. <laughs> so... I'm on board with that. I mean, after all, yet Hild is erred, improved.
0: Mayumi Show plays Mai. Her only real notable role seems to be a character we already talked about, actually, Mia Alice in Dan Gaio.
2: Oh, I thought her voice sounded familiar. Yep.
0: She's also Beth in the 1987 Little Women anime, and the first voice of Chi-Chi in Dragon Ball Z. No, little baby Chi Chi. Woohoo! Mina Tominaga plays Tomomi. She is Yahiko Miyojin in Rurouni Kenshin, Mom in the original version of Dragon Quest Dies Adventure, Miki Hosokawa in Hell Teacher Nubei, and speaking of mecha anime, she's Noah Izumi in Pat Labor. Our villain, BD, is voiced by Kanido Shiazawa. He's Rey in Fist of the North Star, Shin Kazuma in Area 88, Gray Fox in Metal Gear Solid, Vega in Street Fighter, the anime, and uh, the EXA games, Benton in Cyber City, and the role I know him best for, Paul von Oberstein in Legend of the Galactic Heroes.
2: Oh, I was right, I was actually watching that recently and it just kind of clicked, is that frickin' Oberstein?
0: God rest Kaneda Shiozawa's soul. He was taken from us way too soon. One of his underlings, Eigen Yumekano, is voiced by Kiyoshi Kobayashi, the man who will never die. He is Watari in Death Note, Crystal Bowie in Space Adventure Cobra, Aguil Dilaz in Gundam 0083, but he's known for one role and one role only. He, from 1969 all the way up until 2020,
1: was the voice of Daisuke Jigen. The manhole never die. And the one of the funniest things about that man's voice is I wonder if he's ever smoked as much as Daisuke Jigen, right? Because it's pretty consistent throughout every Lupin release.
0: Almost forgot he was the voice of Rubinsky in Legend of the Galactic Heroes.
1: Which I didn't catch that, so. And I love that show, so. Wow, very cool. Shogo's friend Shinji
0: is voiced by a man who made his debut in this OAV and would have quite the career afterward, Koichi Yamadera. He's best known as the voice of Spike Spiegel. As I said previously on this show, he's best known for playing very sort of frumpy, hard-boiled kind of characters. Most famously, he's Spike Spiegel in Cowboy Bebop. He's Kaji in Evangelion. Togusa in Ghost in the Shell. For all you fans of the Yakuza series, he is Shun Akiyama. He is Deslar in Yamato 2199. And speaking of Lupin, he is the current voice of Inspector Zenigata.
1: So let's see, we have a lot of guys in his most famous roles, guys who have ponytails. I wonder if he ever had a ponytail in real life.
0: The last of the voice actors I want to talk about is Yuji Mitsuya. He was Virgo Shaka in Saint Seiya, Kaioshin in Dragon Ball Z, Dr. Tofu in Ranma One Half, Tatsuya Uesugi in Touch, and he is the Japanese voices for Marty McFly and Timon from The Lion King. I think most modern fans will know him as the voice of Kamoshida from Persona 5, the asshole gym teacher. But that does it for the sub. Now, the animego release was courteous enough to include both English dubs. The first one, done by Streamline Pictures. The second, done by ADV. Now, I stuck with the Streamline dub for one reason and one reason only. It's better.
2: Barbara Goodson. Streamline's quality stuff.
1: And, you know, a lot of people want to shit on the Streamline stuff. Like, a couple of my old Taku friends who bought the tapes when they came out in the mid to, you know, in the early and mid-90s are just like, Oh, the Streamline dubs, like, you know, the later dubs are much better, blah, 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 if we didn't have it any other way. But I'm sorry, but Barbara Goodson is on this dub, and I love Barbara Goodson, one of my favorite female voice actors but she's on this first dub for the streamlined dub on the later dub you do have a couple of people that work on particular things and we also have a few people that we'll get into in a second but yeah barbara goodson just sells it for me and there's more nate and tell me about more of those streamline actors that are in the Streamline dub because there's a lot of good names that you guys might recognize if you're Streamline fans like I am. Oh my
0: god, a lot of these people are still working to this day. Well, Shogo is voiced by Bob Bergen. I think many
2: people know
0: him as the current voice of Porky Pig. I don't know if he still does Porky or not. I don't know if they replaced him. But he is voice acting royalty. And I did not know this. He was the voice of No-Face in Spirited Away. I already mentioned Barbara Goodson as Yui, but there's one mm-hmm. actor in particular I want to talk about because I love him and I wish he did more stuff after Streamline. Gregory Snegoff as BD. I love this man's voice. The way I would describe it for younger fans, it sounds like an even deeper Jonah Scott. Just this very low very gruff sort of voice if you want to hear him elsewhere he's duke togo in gogo 13 the professional and he's also the lead in wicked city but i could just listen to him talk all day
1: he kind of has a voice like this in a way you know it's yeah it's it's very much just like hard-boiled something yeah yeah
0: (laughs) it's kind of like the prototype to matt mercer
1: yeah yes absolutely but it's like when i hear it in my head it's like yep i wish he did more work because i just i really liked his voice acting absolutely and i'm a big fan of the original dub of wicked city
0: i actually found out what he's doing nowadays he's still doing english dubbing work in italy that would make sense but let me just list off some names here. Uh, you mentioned Barbara Goodson as Yui. You have Streamline regular Edie Merman as Tomomi. Leah Sargent, who would go on to have quite a long career as Mai. I think my generation will know her best as the voice of Dorothy in the Big O. I'll always love her for her performance as Akari in Battle Athletes Victory. But let me give you some names off of this. Who are still working to this day? We have Richard Cancino, Doug Stone, Tom Weiner, Steve Kramer, Michael Sorich, Kirk Thornton, and another favorite of mine, Dan Warren.
1: Wow. And, you know, I love Doug Stone's work as well because I'm just a big fan of the first five episodes of The Dubbed Zillion. And it's always nice to hear Doug Stone, because you can tell because he's very Canadian. And you're just like, Doug Stone is in something. And especially if you're a Streamline fan, you're like, oh, Doug Stone's in something. Here we go. If you want to hear more Doug Stone, play the Blue
0: Lions route on Fire Emblem Three Houses. Exactly.
1: Oh, I already know. I'm a Switch guy. (laughs) Hey, Dan Warren's in that, too. He sure is. So we got a lot of awesome classic voice actors that really cut their teeth on this sucker. But what about the ADV films one, Nate? I listened
0: to the ADV dub in certain spots, and I I, I really feel bad for this because I'm friends with several of the ADV alumni. I really love the ADV class around this time period, but yeah. the ADV dub really didn't click with me. And of oh, course it's,
1: it's lazy. I mean, I don't I don't really care about any of these people, but honestly, at the end of the day, you got Tiffany Grant, Vic Mignana. Uh let's see here. I was about to say, like, even. I could
0: easily make the obvious joke where I'd rather listen to Bob Bergen than Vic McNagnog. But or
1: Vic McTouchia. Remember, I've made that joke before here on this uh, podcast. Vic's Vic not the
0: problem with this dub. I can still go back, listen to he's him. Fine. He's fine. Yeah, not,
1: yeah. He's not, he's not bad. I mean, I've listened to Vic Mignana for years, and he's okay. But there's a lot of names on this ADV dub, but it does feel lazy. That's the biggest problem. And it was also probably taped around the same time as uh, Generator Gall. It feels like because Vic Mignogna is on the same cast as well as Tiffany Grant and stuff, and it just feels like they're all worn out. Yeah, Vic. Like, Vic said that he. Vic said that he hated Generator Gaul. Generator Gaul's bad. Speaking of another mecha show <laughs> that <laughs> probably got its influence on uh, Megazone Twenty Three, so we're not going too far off the mark here. My problem with the ADV dub is the casting to me
0: because i feel that a lot of the actors don't really fit their roles i'm not really no big on allison keith as yui i feel she's miscast hillary haig is tomomi i don't think that really suits her monica hillary
2: haig doesn't work right in a lot of things to be honest she's miscast a lot in my opinion i concur mm,
1: of
3: course my problem with the adv dub is the idea of matt greenfield possibly getting one of my dollars
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, producer, yeah.
0: Oh shit, I forgot to mention Rebo West was uh in the streamline dub. Huh. That's right. But the biggest the biggest weak link for me is Andy McAvin as BD. When you're comp- putting him up against Kanido Shizawa and the baritone of Gregory Snagoff, Andy McAvan's voice is way too high-pitched to be BD. Let me play a sample from Streamline. I hoped I might see you again.
2: Tell me why you saved my life.
0: Hey, I'm gonna be asking the questions and you're gonna be answering, got it? How many know we're living in a spaceship?
2: Quite a few, of course. The Army's known it longer than most. What? Though I should admit, keeping it under wraps wasn't our decision. Yeah, right. Bahamud made us suppress the information kit.
0: Hey, who comes up with these names anyway?
3: What the hell is
2: Bahamud? Well, let me put it this way. Next to Bahamud, your fastest cray going is a two-bit pocket calculator. And it's been controlling everything for a long time. It manages information so perfectly that only a few know they're living on a spaceship. The rest of the world goes along living more or less peacefully in what is in reality the illusion of something called the 20th century. And now, here's a sample from the ADV
0: dub. It's time to start talking. Why have you been chasing me? Why did you just help me? You already knew the truth, didn't you? That our whole city's actually inside a giant spaceship. That's correct. The military's known for quite a while. But... But it's not the
1: military that's been hiding all of this. Bahamut is the one who didn't want us to know. Yeah, Bahamut. What the hell is that thing?
2: A computer. One that's been secretly controlling everything the human race sees and hears since before we
0: were born. It's manipulated us so skillfully that we'd never realize the truth, which is that the city we live in is actually part of a giant spaceship.
1: All of this so that except for an elite few, the populace would be blissfully living in an illusion of the perfect world. Or rather, the perfect prison. So everything else, the rest of the world exists only in the computer? And the
0: time we think we live in is five centuries past you can see why I prefer the streamlined dub. I mean, no disrespect to any of the actors in the ADV dub, but... Uh, I don't know, like, I don't get why ADV slash Sentai has this urge to redub everything or just not license the original dub. I get it for Netflix shows, but for stuff that's this old... And usually a lot of their redubs really don't sit well with me in my eyes. Questioning
3: why ADV made a decision is something that not even ADV did. <laughs> that's true.
2: And yeah, that's yeah, why
3: put into five separate factions that you can't possibly sue for any of those outstanding bills.
0: <laughs> Tiffany Grant if you're listening to this I want to apologize in advance. <laughs> So let's sort of go into the meat and potatoes of Megazone, and as you said, Megazone 2-3, it's pretty much a very simple story, but I feel like it's also one that will leave an impact on you. Like, with Dalos, I can barely remember what happened in it, but with Megazone, I can tell
1: you the plot. Listen, Megazone 2-3, the best part about it is tearing apart... It's lack of plot and premise, and just making fun of it as you go along. That is the, the best premise thing. Premise is that two, cool
3: guy owns a motorcycle that's also a robot. The story exactly. is cool guy owns a motorcycle that's also a robot. The story arc is cool guy owns a motorcycle that's also a robot.
1: No, Justin, you missed it out. You missed out the last part. Cool guy, who is also a very shitty person in 2022 standards, owns a cool motorcycle. He got a cool motorcycle from his friend. He doesn't even care that his friend went boo-hoo-bye-bye. He gets the girl, bangs the girl, talks talks about simulation theory, and then his other friends die. He doesn't care because he got to see the other side of reality while flying around on his cool little motorcycle mecha. That's the plot. Cool guy does everything cool, has no disregard for his friends, gets to bang the hot chick, and tries to expose a government conspiracy, and fails at it, still survives, and then sayonara, that's the end of the show. <laughs> That's pretty much it.
3: We discussed that a bit earlier. That macros two is Megazone two three. If somebody was standing over Megazone two three's staff saying, "No, that's stupid. We're doing a macro story,"
1: yeah. or basically, if the macros staff was looking at Megazone two 3's trying trying to steal their homework and going, "No, you can't just put C under every answer." on the SATs. That's basically how it is, but I will tell you Macross 2 as an arcade game is one of the most infuriating things and makes me hate Macross 2 more than I think it's more widely hated than by the creators of themselves because Macross 2 is trouble, Macross Plus saved Macross in my personal opinion, but it's simple, but you
0: know what? I think simple is best because the big twist of course in megazone is that shogo ultimately discovers that he is living in a social construct kind of a matrix if you will oh.
1: gasp dark city gasp matrix oh we have to think about dark city from 1998 can't forget about
2: that well, that's what it reminds me more of but yeah
0: I mean, everybody points to The Matrix ripping off Ghost in the Shell. Nobody talks about how the plot of The Matrix is basically jacked from Megazone
1: 2-3. Nobody really talks about that because Ghost in the Shell has a huger cultural impact than Megazone 2-3 does. Megazone 2-3, to us anime fans, is kind of like, oh yeah, we see that there, but if it's under the wide umbrella of cyberpunk then yeah people could easily say oh yeah ghost in the shell the matrix but not megazone 2 3 even though megazone 2 3 is much closer and i think that's what the Wachowskis wanted to reference but then people and of course anime consumption was much different when the matrix was out nobody cared about megazone 2 3 so they saw ghost in the shell because ghost in the shell was a bigger impact had a bigger impact at the time
2: well, I mean, I can. The Wachowskis themselves denied that uh, Mega Zone Two Three was an influence, and if they, you know, I don't necessarily think they're lying. I think it's more just, you know, popular, already long-established sci-fi tropes playing out, and you know, with similar themes and whatnot. There's a lot of this stuff goes back it. even
1: further. They deny it, but also it's the same thing like with the whole Heinlein fantasy and whatever. The Wachowskis will also go out of their way to deny any of their influences because they were called masters of their craft at oh, one point. I'm
2: not saying their word is gospel truth. I'm just saying I could see it yeah. both ways.
1: Uh, um, I see so it one they
2: way. Are actually
3: pretty open about yes. This came from Philip K. Dick. Yes, this came from. They're they're pretty open about when where they were. Usually about, pretty open, but early inspired. on they
1: weren't, and of course over time, you know, you forget the script.
3: No, it comes down to there's conscious inspiration, there's subconscious inspiration. Whether you know, if you're consciously inspired by something, you're going to cite it immediately as yeah, you know, I saw this, I read this, and I you know, I wanted to do this. If it's something you've consumed at some point in your life. And taken internally, it will affect you, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're drawing directly from it. You know, there's a difference between Bubblegum Crisis lifting frames from Streets of Fire for Chris's musical performance, and Bubblegum Crisis having one-man helicopters that are worn like a suit, you know, much like a... Uh, pre-Korean war American prototype.
1: Oh, like uh, G.I. Joe as well with Cobra. (laughs) Yeah, so definitely Cyberpunk has its kind of definitely grasp on this whole aspect here.
0: Yeah, this is pretty much a Cyberpunk story in that the tech that they use, even though it is futuristic, isn't all that much different from the time period because one of the aesthetics of Cyberpunk is that a cyberpunk future is basically a future imagined by somebody in the 80s and or 90s. Yeah. it's It has more in common with hard sci-fi. I mean, you could argue that Eve isn't really cyberpunk because she's a hologram, although that doesn't come into play until the later parts. But for this, the fact that she's just a computer program makes this more cyberpunk than anything.
1: And also the cyberpunk parallels is from an ova a year later where they have the same supercomputer called toy in gray digital target but one thing that i do like overall about Megazone 2.3 compared to any other cyberpunk story that I've ever seen it's not bitter and over to like this is what happens when capitalism goes too far what happens when capitalism 2 goes too far find out at 9 p.m on Megazone 2.3 it's not like a story where capitalism goes too far where people are hurt by it it's a story of basically people stuck in a particular reality that are consuming entertainment, media, and aspects of capitalism like McDonald's, uh, like fashion clothing, like pop stars, like a, if you even want to think about a Carson Daly kind of character, like a V VJ, who's also the biggest pop star ever, which is Eve. <laughs> Okay, so we're recording this on a different
0: day um, because uh, Mike had to sign off. Um, Unfortunately, Justin had to drop out, so it's just me, Mike, and Race from here on out. But when we last left off, we were giving our general thoughts on Megazone 2-3, and we were talking about how Megazone 2-3 is pretty much the precursor to the Matrix, shall we say. Of course, the Wachowskis denied this. But there's something else I do want to say about Megazone 2-3 predicting the future. Because I want to talk about Eve as a character. Now the big twist, spoilers, is that Eve, who is pretty much portrayed as being the idol singer who is loved by millions and is the host of a TV show that she hosts at primetime, she's not a real person. It turns out that Eve is a computer program made by the military to distract the masses. And I want to say this anime predicted the future. The idea for a virtual idol was floated by Ishiguro during Macross, as he wanted a subplot where Minmei was kidnapped and replaced with a hologram. Now, this was merely a footnote in Macross Do You Remember Love?, but this idea is fully realized in Megazone 2.3. I bring this up because not only would we see Virtual Idols again in Macross Plus, but we would later have Hatsune Miku come around in the mid-2000s, and ultimately, Noboro Ishiguro
1: created the original VTuber in EVE. And as a streamer myself, that uh, I-, I want to dig that man up and punch him in the face. Let's be <laughs> real. First off, I'm going to make that. Um, also, second <laughs> off, second off. let's be real because it was brought up in Macross, uh, Macross 2 again with the Minmay maneuver. And that's how their Space Force was fighting off the Zendradi uh, remnants was using the Minmay maneuver if you remember that, and that was just a like hologram of Minmay when she was younger, just with different songs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> We got the Picard maneuver, and we've got the Minmay maneuver. We also have the Kobayashi Maru. Hey, look at that. And also, you can see Urusei Atsura all over Star Trek. So, uh... Yep. Just uh, going a little bit off the track there, but yeah, the original VTuber, the virtual idol... Uh, We all owe that to Megazone 2-3, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we talk about EVE. Do we really need to talk about the other
0: characters? Because really, the only character whose presence matters is Shogo as our main character.
1: Right. Shogo matters, but I think that the other characters matter because everything seems to revolve around Shogo. Shogo is pretty much our planet who has the gravitational pull of where all of the other generic 80s anime characters kind of come in and i would have to say that there was let's see here who is his love interest i believe it was yui yeah i think that was yeah that is correct it is yui yeah so we have and you can tell that they're anime main characters in the late 80s because yui has green hair mai has red hair and tomomi has blue hair so Outlandish hair colors means they are important to the plot slightly, and I like that they're honestly one-dimensional characters. Yui is doesn't become more of an important character until a little later, in my personal opinion. But Mai and Tomomi, you you gotta you gotta love them because all they want to do is just make music and work you know dead-end jobs (laughs)
0: tomomi wants to make a movie mai is an idol of course later on it's revealed that mai is the daughter of one of the benefactors of the military right the villain Agen, the man who's ultimately pulling the strings
1: behind the scenes And that's a character that you always tend to forget about because of just how fast the OVA moves, so you really don't get too many strong character beats, especially during the end. It very much feels
0: like a series condensed into an OAV, but it handles it a little better than something like Gundam F91.
2: I mean, low bar that that is. (laughs) I I like F91, but yeah.
1: Yeah, F91 is fantastic, but, I mean, hey, you know what? If we're grabbing at low-hanging fruit, let's go let's go there and talk about that. Because I think that Megazone 2-3, especially with, like, how fast and how slow it moves at the same time, and it's a contradiction to itself. If you really think about the pace of Megazone 2-3 and you think about the pace of F91, those two have a lot in common, despite the idles and everything like that.
0: I think... Megazone 2-3 works a little better because its story is a lot smaller in terms of scale. It's not trying to paint a giant intergalactic war between two factions. It's simply contained within one artificial city, and that's it. It does world build a little bit once Shogo learns that the city he lives in is indeed a facade, but I think its pacing sort of helps it hide the fact that it was meant to be a series
1: that's for sure and going back to the characters and of course the the pacing and the plot i would have to say that maya and tomomi are fantastic wing women i mean i think that all of us deep down really do want friends like maya and tomomi because they have two personality traits their personality traits are basically, we have our dreams and we want to follow them. And, oh, let's get our cute friend Shogo. Let's get him a little bit of that puss-puss. I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's perfect. I mean, who who doesn't want that? Who just doesn't want the ultimate wing women? Because I'll tell you why. Usually when you have a wing man or a wing woman, they're usually on one side of you. But boy, howdy, you are soaring when you have the red-haired and blue-haired vixen as a Mayan Tomome who ask you you should be in my movie and oh (laughs) we'll help you get a girlfriend you like our friend yeah that's Hang out with us all the time. You work at McDonald's, we don't care. You got a military motorcycle, who cares? You live with your folks. They're the ultimate awesome wing women. Come on, guys, let's be real. Shogo has it made. Honestly, I prefer Shogo
0: with Tomomi than I do with Yui, but I think Yui's a cute little character in and of herself. I feel that she doesn't really develop much of a personality toward the end, whereas Tomomi is the feisty tomboy and Mai is the more shy, silent type.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, these characters are basically just, you know, your typical summer movie blockbuster teenage girl stereotypes. I mean, that's very much intentional, that's what they were going for.
0: And that's why I think Megazone 2-3 works so well. It feels very much like it's trying to be a blockbuster movie rather than some big epic series. I do want to talk about the villain, though, BD, because... I like BD, even if he does look like evil Roy Foker.
1: The one thing that I take away from BD is how, how many times he tries to compromise with Shogo and always seems to fail. He wants to compromise with him, but he just doesn't at the end of the day. I think it's due to
0: Shogo's own brash nature. Like, Shogo, he's a bit of a hardhead, but he's not a bad guy.
1: Right. And I think BD sees that. But I also think one thing that's really cool about BD is that BD at, at one point, him and his guys are like, dude, you should just join the military. You'd have fun with us, if I'm not mistaken. I know that he's like tried to coax Shogo to be like, hey, you know what? We'll we'll, we'll bring in warm and you can have everything you ever want, dude. And then Shogo's like, nope.
0: He's very much trying to make a Faustian bargain with Shogo. And you can see both sides of the argument. Even if you do kind of end up feeling more on the side of Shogo than you do BD.
1: Right. And I think that's what works about those two characters' dynamics, because they're in different parts of their lives. And if they were similar in age... I think that they would see eye to eye more, but I think that's one of the big things that I like about this OVA too, is that they actually do a good job of, of bringing up like a generational gap. Like for instance, you know how I've got a good few friends that are Gen Xers, you know, and well, a good amount of friends that are Gen Xers and the Gen Xers kind of have a different way of thinking than I do. And, you know, my friends who are, you know, Gen Zers have a different way of thinking than I do. And I like their dynamic, even though Shogo and BD aren't friends. But you could see that there is a communication breakdown between those two characters, especially when BD has always tried to level with Shogo about everything going on and tries to relate to him. There's just a communication breakdown.
0: I like at the very end in the final battle how BD is effectively taunting Shogo. Basically right. trying to hit him with everything he has, but Shogo is just so blinded by his own rage against what BD and his army have done
1: that he's not thinking straight. What do you say, Mike? Like, what's what's your take on BD?
2: I mean, he strikes me as your uh, typical honorable antagonist archetype, you know, your Shars and your Ashrams and whatnot, a bit more toned down, but, you know, less over the top. But kind of fitting that mold. And it works.
1: I think it does. I never really thought about sort of the Char um, as, you know, sort of a villain or a rival kind of thing with uh, BD. But I do see it a little bit now thinking about it. Like, yeah, it. again,
2: he's not like specifically Char, but it's like that kind of character type.
1: Okay, yeah. Especially on the outside. Yeah. Yeah, because we don't get really too far into BD, BD's character, which I think is an okay thing. Well, yeah, it uh, works.
0: At least not until part two, two. but we'll yeah. cross that mm-hmm. bridge when uh, when we get there. Uh, one last little bit of trivia about B.D. Do you want to know what his name stands for? Hmm, I'm curious. You're probably thinking, like, Blu-ray Disc, Bon Désiné, Ben Diskin. The answer, according to the Megazone 2.3 illustration book that came
1: with the Omega Edition... Bloody Dandy. I, I'm stealing that name. That is so good. I mean, That is yeah. such a good name for no particular reason other than the word blood is in it.
0: I mean, when you look at him for long enough, he
1: does kind of look more like evil space
0: dandy than evil Roy Foker.
1: Fair, fair. Either or, I do enjoy his design. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I
0: do wish they kept those designs for the next part, but something, though, I do want to talk about that's always stuck with me, and not necessarily for a good reason, and the one thing I kind of dislike about this, and I'm not prudish on the subject, the sex scene.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, so I remember when we were planning this whole thing out, and we were just kind of, like, you know, getting warmed up to each other, and I, I told you guys that I made up my own word for this, And you see this in action movies every so often. I like to call it sex position, where there's the exposition of what the characters are going through and everything during the sex scene. And I think that's what all Yui is there to be, is just to hear why, like, Shogo's convictions and to be the the brick wall while she's getting (laughs) and I hate to sound so just like sexist about it and I will be but yeah it's sex position that's that scene is just completely and utterly fair (laughs) to give us exposition but it has to be edgy and everything like that and action movies have done that here and there I think I well, I mean, if you want to consider Alien Three to be a bit of an action movie, but there was exposition during, during and after that scene. You know, that gave us an idea of what Fury One Six One was and all of that. To be honest, if you really think about it, but I just think it's funny that they have this philosophical conversation, just while everything is going on. It's like, dude, how can you do that? <laughs> like that is unrealistic. But uh, you do, you show go, you can do everything.
0: I love how their uh, little conversation in that scene is recorded through telepathy. Michael, your thoughts on that uh, sex scene?
2: Well, from what I understand, they be, when they uh, decided this whole thing was going to be a one-shot OVA anyway, they wanted to kind of fit in with what was already going on with the OVA market, which was, you know, more adult material, more explicit, more um, uh, exploitation cinema type stuff. So they were like, hey, let's tack in a few sex scenes. I mean, there was more to it than that, but a lot of that's what it boils down to, and, eh, I'm fine with it, you know. Yeah. I like trauma films and stuff like that, so...
1: That's I a... think it's one of those things where it definitely works out for what you get, but it was a different era. I think these days it definitely wouldn't uh, fly, but... I mean, looking at it from my
0: perspective, I actually watched this when I was doing a project for school at that time, and i'll never forget when that sex scene came on my mom was present with me and i'm like oh oh dear oh oh boy oh yeah yeah. oh um yeah mom uh, no no this is this isn't this is not what uh, anime is all about
1: you have to tell her it's high art and then tell her to shut up that's what i always did with my mom when i was young i said this is high art Because I think we've all talked about sort of our beginnings with 80s anime and everything like that, and how I got into it when I was a teenager. And basically, you know, I'd watch stuff like Ixer 1, and of course, everybody knows the beginning scene to Ixer 1. We have the lesbian sex scene at the beginning of Ixer 1. So, yeah, kind of going through that, like, oh, this thing is so cool. And of course, the lesbian implication between Nagasa and Ixer 1 themselves. It's it's basically trying to explain a super cool OVA and then being like, oh, yeah, should you really be showing this to your other teenage boyfriends at the time? And it's not what it's all about. But, you know, you you just you for you skip past that part in a way you just go, well, it's here. It's a part of this. But the biggest thing about it, like I said, that's that sex position, just the ex- whole plot is there. The philosophical conversation just, boom, it's there. Yeah. And we have to live with it. <laughs> I don't know what's more awkward. Is this one or the sex scene in part two? I still have to say part two because because I'm not a fan of part two, personally. I'll, when, we, when we get to there, we'll have to uh, talk about why I don't like part two. I'll save
0: my thoughts on that for later. Uh, before we get to our final thoughts, though, I do want to talk about the ending, Not the ending itself, because I think I like the ending for part one. It does end on an ambiguous note, but it does feel very self-contained. The old, the hero is down, but he's not out scenario. It bookends what is a very frantic OAV nicely. What do you think of the ending?
2: I mean, I kind of like the, like, before they realized they were going to make a sequel... Uh, I kind of, or rather, should say before we knew there was going to be a sequel, I kind of like the ambiguity of the ending, you know? Like you said, he's defeated, he's kind of walking off into the sunset, and there's nothing there but uncertainty, which I, I kind of like those kind of endings, even if we didn't get a follow-up. For me,
1: it uh, was exactly the same ending as another OVA, which was a uh, gray digital target. It's ambiguous. Uh, it leaves you feeling uncertain. If you're gonna do like I would say an anime watch marathon where you wanted to show your friends a couple of things and you had like six hours to hang out because you and a couple of buddies who are anime fans, I got nothing to do but sit around and have a couple of uh, couple of drinks and watch anime and hang out. I would probably put Megazone Two first just because it has sort of ambiguous ending. It's very somber at the end, yeah. and that's like a that's. It's a downer, you know, you don't want to put that one last in sort of like an anime watch party kind of situation. You kind of want to put that one first because it is a classic, you know, whether you like it or not. But the ambiguous ending is a big thing that OVAs did. Like I said, bringing up Gray Digital Target and stuff like that was was definitely another one that ends very somberly as well. And it's just like, oh, that's depressing.
0: (laughs) I wouldn't say the ending is depressing, but it's very much a hero has lost the battle, but not the war. He's down, yeah. but he's not out, and he will live to fight another day.
1: Yep. Yeah, but still, I mean, that was it, that, and that was actually par for the course for a lot of OVAs like that too. So that's pretty, that's pretty interesting to think about because it it's like, oh yeah, I could tie us to. excuse me. I could talk about a few other OVAs that have done that, you know, in the 80s, and especially around that time, too, which is cool with wild and crazy kids. I bring up
0: the ending, though, because they actually made an alternate ending for Megazone 2-3 Part 1, and this is where we get into unfortunate territory, shall you say, because, as we all know... Robotech is a Frankenstein creation of Macross, Southern Cross, and Mospita. Now, apparently, Harmony Gold wanted to use Macross Do You Remember Love as Robotech the movie, and I think it was too expensive for them, so they ultimately went with Megazone 2-3 Part 1 and dubbed it as Robotech The Untold Story.
2: Which, honestly, I know it gets a lot of hate. I thought it was fine. It's unfortunate that they made the changes they did, but, honestly, a lot of that was the studio's pressure.
0: Indeed, because the ending, known simply as Present for You, is a completely original ending where Mm -hmm. Shogo emerges victorious, the Hollywood ending. It can be considered as sort of the happy ending for Megazone 2, 3, Part 1, And honestly, I get it. I mean, it's certainly a much happier ending than Megazone 2-3 Part 1. It feels very conclusive. I don't know if I like it more than the original, though.
2: I'll say this, it's a better alternate happy ending than Blade Runner got. I concur. I mean, again, low bar that that is.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, I agree with that. So I think we all agree that the ending works instead of the alternate ending, even though the alternate ending is passable. Yeah, yeah. I think it works in and of itself. If you only watch part one,
0: I think you will find that the ending is satisfactory. It's kind of like Giant Robo, where you wish there was more, but at the same time, you're happy that you watched it. So lastly, what do we feel is... The legacy of Megazone 2.3 Part 1.
2: I think its biggest importance actually lies not in anything it did artistically, but in um its impact on the market, what it did for popularizing, what eventually became well known OVA tropes. The uh, the OVA market was around before this for sure, but this is kind of what catalyzed it into a boom. Absolutely. And we see a lot of their a lot of uh, OVA practices start out there like Again, like the, the sex position thing you mentioned, that's you see that in a lot of anime, and I think a lot of it does come from this one. I mean, it's a thing you can make up on your own, of course, but looking at the other influences this had, there's a likelihood that that was direct.
1: Absolutely. I would have to say, I, I think one of the bigger things that I got out of Megazone 2.3 was the anime fans that were a little bit older than me This was one of their options, and this was an option that they knew and that they ultimately liked. And that was, you know, one of those things that they would watch. That was one of the OVAs that they would watch outside of, you know, buying Akira, uh, you know, on VHS or buying a lot of the other options from Streamline Pictures. Megazone 2-3 was a pretty popular choice. Or people outside of you know, obviously Vampire Hunter D, and you, you guys knew what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, we know what you're but, talking about. But I think uh, the the biggest legacy that Megazone 23 has is that it's a it's a curiosity of an OVA. You can kind of tell if they if the younger anime fans want to listen that hey, this is what I had. This was one of the earlier OVAs that we had, and it's. Somewhat easy to digest, and the legacy is that it's still cool. And like Mike was saying, there's a lot of great tropes that stick in there. And, you know, like I said, you could sit there with the with a drink while you're doing an anime watch party with your friends, and Leonardo DiCaprio, Holly, you know, the Hollywood trope, just like, yeah, see that? That's the tropes there! That's the trope! Which actually it reminds me of uh,
2: another thing that this... Uh, well, worth talking about, because... Megazone 23's other significance actually is as a metric for what was popular in Japan at the time, and you actually went over a little bit of this in the uh, beginning of the podcast, you know. Mikimoto character designs, catchy pop-slash-rock music, transforming vehicle mechs, OVAs with sex and violence, streets of fire, flash dancing, Japanese bike culture, the list can go on. Right. And that's one thing to take away from that, too, because...
1: Unless it's like a slice of life anime, you don't see that in science fiction anime too much anymore. You don't see like, oh, these are these are what's popular at the time. Usually it's some futuristic society that takes trend from what's popular at the moment. But you never see an anime that just encapsulates. It's a time capsule. Yes. And probably in the best way possible. Indeed. My feelings
0: on Megazone Two Three is that I think it is one of the most important anime ever made. Up there with the likes of Space Battleship Yamato, and I'd even say maybe even Gundam. Not necessarily for its quality, but for what it did for the OAV market, because this was the first true mega smash hit in the OAV market because previously most of the OAVs that were selling was porn. It ultimately proves that that the OAV format was incredibly viable for creators and directors to sort of make the projects they've always wanted to make without the pressure of time, budgets, or all that other stuff. And in that regard, I do think Megazone 2.3 is is super important, and as a bit of a final thought, while it isn't a perfect OAV, nor would I even say it's one of the greatest things ever made, it's still an incredibly watchable piece of 80s glory. I absolutely enjoy it from start to back, you can watch it all in one sitting, there's a lot to like about it, and yeah, I think it's highly recommended, it's especially fun to watch with friends. Especially yeah. if you have those who love the '80s stuff,
2: mm-hmm.
1: absolutely. And especially if they, you know, love the '80s and aren't too well versed on anime, Magazone Two Three is actually one of those anime that I would recommend for a friend that is a little bit of an '80s person, especially with the uh, popularity of the current. Uh, Season of Stranger Things, you know, because that always shows up. It was a passing interest in sort of the 80s stuff because the earlier seasons would have that one thing that was like, oh, this is a mark of the 80s in the first season. They misdated a Joy Division reference, and that's what everybody made fun of uh, Stranger Things for at first. But now with the whole Kate Bush thing and the whole, you know, uh, Eddie Munson character loving metal from around that time. You can show this to anyone who has just a fascination with media from the 80s, who loves the movie, let's say they love Blade Runner, loves Aliens, uh loves Terminator. It's they're going to see they're not going to see all of it there, but they're going to see references of it there and a wink and a nod to them if they are more well-versed in Western culture than Japanese culture. So you see a lot of that Western culture, like a wink and a nod, like, yeah, we know you're watching this. But yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there for I think non-anime fans to watch as well. Like, if they have a passing interest in 1980s culture, they could watch Megazone 2-3 for the first time and just go, oh, okay, I get it. But if you have friends that are woke, warn them a little bit First, because there's a couple of things in the OVA that uh, I wouldn't suggest for anyone that's overtly woke or whatever. I think that they would have a bad time with it, especially if they're younger. But if they're o- older and you know have never really watched an anime, I think that Megazone Two Three Part One is a good introduction because they can kind of get the hubbub of what everybody was like, oh, it's all about, you know, anime is all about sex and violence. You can get that out of their system and be like, oh, here's some other good stuff from the 80s if you like the sex and violence or don't. Oh, here's something that's more toned back from the 80s if you like that style and those good character designs. I feel like you could introduce somebody to Macross or Gundam or uh, introduce someone to, to more 80s anime just because of how well- there's aspects of how well-drawn Megazone 2-3 is, so it's a highly suggestible anime. I concur with both you guys on that. Uh, don't you agree that this is something that you can show in 80s, like a person that oh, does yeah. 30s stuff?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, personally, my go-tos for that are like Bubblegum Crisis or Dirty Bear, but yeah, this is definitely on the list.
1: It is, yeah. Okay, so dirty, yeah, dirty pair, bubblegum crisis, especially if they've never really seen an anime before. But Megazone two, three, I think is more easily digestible.
2: Well, I think I think all three of those, uh, the commonality they have is they're all easy sells to non-anime fans as well. That's true because they're cyberpunk. Yep, yeah, cyberpunk, a lot of Western movie tropes, stuff like that. Nothing too unfamiliar, but still very good and very anime.
1: So
0: that's going to do it pretty much for this review. If you want to watch Megazone 2-3, last I checked, it is currently streaming on Retro Crush. If you can't find it streaming, though, don't worry. Animego's got you covered. You can order it straight from their website. Robert Woodhead will personally ship that Blu-ray to your doorstep himself. So next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we leave the 80s behind and go into the good old-fashioned realms of one of anime's staples the high school comedy. The story of a group of teenage boys and the many weird people that surround them in one of the most acclaimed comedies of the 2010s, we're gonna look at the daily lives of high school boys. And I am really, really looking forward to this one. And also there will be discussion on Nipponichi Software's uh, odd foray into the anime industry. So, before we go, if you like this podcast and enjoy us rambling about anime old and new, please give us a like. Follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, any place you get your podcasts from. If you want to follow me on social media, I am otaku nate show on Facebook, and you can also find me on Twitter at otaku nate show. And before we go, I just want to say that I am going to Otakon next week, and I will be hosting my first. Ever, 18 plus panel no it's nothing too dirty I'm going to do a panel all about Black Lagoon it will be on Saturday at 830 unfortunately it overlaps with the discotech panel and I am so so upset about that I'm trying to get it changed but I don't think I will but if you can Let's go. So, uh, guys, plug your stuff before we do the sign-off.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, I'm Mike. I am one half of Maze on Otaku. You can uh, check us out. Uh, that's the name of our channel on YouTube. We're also on Facebook. Full disclosure, we are on a bit of an extended hiatus, but we're not dead. Uh, if you shoot us a message or a comment, we do eventually respond, and we'll be getting some new videos up for a while. But each of our videos is basically like uh, a convention panel in YouTube format, so if that sounds fun to you and you like a couple of old geezers talking about old anime and some new stuff, give us a check. Give us a watch.
1: My name is Race Ribble, aka Racerex. You can check me out on Twitter, that at sign Race Ribble, R A Y C E R I B B L E. That's usually where I'm most active. I am also on Facebook, and I mainly stream on Twitch. You can check me out 8 p.m.s on most nights. We are changing around our schedule a little bit there, but if you ever want to accost me about old anime or talk about anything stupid, I have a wall of my VHS tapes behind me. Sometimes I actually just do streams where I talk about my VHS tapes. I play a lot of old school and new school games. Come by, check me out. We also have a YouTube. My Linktree is Linktree slash RacerX, so check me out there, and you'll see all of my links. I'm a musician as well, so you'll... There's something for everybody. I'm like a golden corral. I've got something for everyone. Nate knows this. Got something for everybody. That's why he always brings me back. I just got something for everybody. All right.
0: So, until then, this is Otaku Nate, Racer X, and Mike. And we're signing off and saying in a world where nothing is real, you've got nothing to lose.